I read about a novice counselor at a children's camp. It was his first go-round as a counselor. And each evening, he was instructed to meet with all the students assigned to him. He had six young boys. They were preteens. And he would go from boy to boy to boy, asking, what have you learned this week? How are you experiencing the camp? The second boy he addressed on the first night began to sob. And he, as I've mentioned, was inexperienced in these things. It unnerved him. As he watched this boy sob, he got up from where he was sitting and made his way toward the bunk of the boy who was crying. And he put his hand on his shoulder and he said, are you homesick? And just as soon as those words escaped his mouth, the boy blurted out, no, I'm here sick. He was sick of being away from home. He wanted to be home, but he was sick of being where he was. Perhaps you feel that way about some situation in your life. Some of you are in El Paso and you're here sick. We don't want any testimonies about that this morning. But some of you have that you're dealing with. Some of you are in a marriage which finds you here sick. Others of you have a body which is ailing in some way, and you're sick of being in that body. As we age, we know that the body has a way of working against us. There's a saying that goes like this, when a man is young, he works through his body. When he grows old, he works against his body. So we know we can be here sick in our bodies. We can be here sick in a church. I read about a man whose mother was very concerned about him because he who had had a consistent history throughout his growing up days into his young adulthood, he still lived at home, he had become sick of the church that he was a part of. And his mother was very concerned because she knew he had an abiding relationship with Christ. And so she did everything she could on Sunday mornings to make it good setting for launching him out to the place of worship. She went there too, of course. And she would fix him a nice breakfast this particular Sunday morning as his reluctance had grown over time. She was making his favorite meal for breakfast. And you know how it is. Probably not too many of you fix a full breakfast for your family if you're the cook there. On Sunday morning, you're bustling around to get here to worship the Lord. But in this case, the wonderful aromas of, and especially the bacon cooking. There's hardly anything like bacon cooking. And her son lived upstairs. They were in a two-story house. And that aroma was wafting upstairs. And she thought, this will surely hook him. He'll jump out of bed the moment I call him and come down here and eat and get ready to go to worship the Lord in our church. So she called him. John was his name. John. Breakfast is ready. No sound from John's room. She knew he was in there. So she waited a couple minutes, mounted the stairs, knocked on the door and said, John, breakfast is ready. We have to get ourselves together to go to church. No sound. And she opened the door and burst in and she just shouted at him. He pulled the covers over his head. She said, John, you've got to get up. And then he peeked out of the covers and he said, Mom, I don't want to go down there. The people don't like me. 
and I don't like them, and you can't give me one good reason why I should go. And she said, John, I'm going to give you two good reasons. One is you're 40 years old, and the second is you're the pastor of the church. (laughs) That probably happened somewhere. Probably did. Well, some of you are sick of being here. Now, I must admit, I had no reluctance to come here today. I'm glad to be here. But we all have different settings in which we find ourselves here sick. The passage of Scripture which we're going to look at today is a description and a prescription, I might add, to a people who were here sick. And God has a message for you and me, if not applicable to your moment in life now, probably it will be applicable in your life at some point along the way. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, the 29th chapter. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 23 together. And it's a lengthy portion of Scripture. I'm not going to read the entire passage and then come back and deal with each section. I'm going to deal with each section one at a time as we read this passage of Scripture. I'll comment, and we're going to draw some principles for how we can be made well from here sickness. It says heart sickness there, and that's probably what I wrote on the piece of paper I gave to the dear ladies who work the booth for us, but it's here sickness. It is a heart sickness as well. Look at verse 1 of of chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into Jerusalem to Babylon. Let me give you some historical background. In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had made a raid on Jerusalem. And he had singled out people who were older people, who had wisdom. He calls them the elders. And he, had, in addition to that, had singled out some of the priests and the prophets to come with this group of people, which numbered, by the way, 3,023. And then in addition to that, he had singled out craftsmen and artisans. Actually, he skimmed the cream off the top of Jerusalem culture to bring those people there. Now, let me make mention of this. Among those were two figures whom we know as prophets themselves, Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel tells of his being part of that migration. It was a forced march of 700 miles. Imagine how many of the older folks and maybe some of the younger people had died on the way. That's a long way to walk anywhere. And it was across a desert region. And here we see that among these who came was a man named Ezekiel. He had not been appointed a prophet at that time, but he was there. And in addition to that, we know there were other prophets, and some of them we're going to see were false prophets. So these people had come 
at the order of Nebuchadnezzar. This was his way of handling the regions which he conquered. He would take the elite away in order for them not to foment a rebellion against him there. But also, he wanted their wisdom to be at the disposal of his empire, the Babylonian empire. He knew that there was a treasure stored in the minds and hearts of people of this stripe. So he had brought those people there. And then this letter comes from Jeremiah to the people who were there. Postmark Jerusalem. Probably this was a year or so after they had gotten there. They were still here sick. They were in a place they would never have chosen to go. Everything about the culture reeked of something that was negative to them. The religion, it was polytheistic. All kinds of gods were worshipped there. The primary god was a god by the name of Marduk. Everywhere they turned, even when they walked down the main thoroughfare of Babylon, they would see imprinted on what we would call the pavement. They would see imprinted images of Marduk. They would see statues of this Babylonian god everywhere they went. The language was different. It was a sister language. Aramaic was the language. It was a Semitic language like Hebrew, but it was foreign to them. They couldn't quite understand it. They didn't dress the way the people dressed. They were in a place that was very foreign. And any news from Jerusalem was cause for excitement. This letter had the postmark of Jerusalem on it. And so their sense of anticipation probably rose when they learned that Jeremiah had sent a letter from their home city, which was much loved. Verse 2 says, this was after King Jeconiah. This is... The king Jehoiakim is the other name by which he is known. And the queen mother, this is Nehushtah, his mother. The court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, let me make an observation about the two men to whom Jeremiah had entrusted this letter. One was the son of Shaphan, the other the son of Hilkiah. Perhaps you know the name Josiah. Josiah is arguably the greatest king in the history of Judah. Not of Israel. David and Solomon probably trumped him in a way. But in Judah, after the civil war Occurred, dividing the nation into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Josiah was a man of God. From an early age, he began to seek God. By the time of 16, he was leading the nation in spiritual reform. And then, for some odd reason, I think I know the reason that I won't go into, but for some odd reason, when Pharaoh Necho of Egypt was coming up through that region and he was passing near to Jerusalem. He was not intent upon doing anything negative to Jerusalem. He was going to take on the king of Assyria. When his vast army was passing by, Josiah put on his war gear, got his army, and went all out to face off with Pharaoh Necho. And Necho sent an envoy to him and said, I have no bone to pick with you, Josiah. Go home. You're no match for my forces. Your people will be wiped out. And 
Josiah wouldn't listen. He went ahead and engaged Necho, and he lost his life, as did many, if not most, of those who accompanied him. So when Josiah was king, you may recall that part of his reform, when he was reforming the nation, was to restore the temple. It had fallen into disrepair. And Hilkiah was the one whom he placed in charge of the cleaning up and rebuilding of the temple. Not the structure, but the interior of it. And Hilkiah found the Word of God. It had been lying there unread for no telling how many generations. He brought the law of God to him. And then Shaphan was, in effect, the Secretary of State. So the sons of these two great leaders under Josiah, they were the ones into whose hands the prophet Jeremiah entrusted this letter. And they were trustworthy. The people would have trusted them because of their background. Now, we're going to look at the first thing that this passage of Scripture teaches us about how to be cured of our here sickness. First of all, realize that God sent you here. Look at verse 4 as we read this letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is repeated later, as we'll see as we work our way through the letter. This was an emphasis that God wanted to make to reassure the people that they were not there without His knowing it. In fact, He was their travel agent, as it were. He was the one who established the itinerary to send these 3,023, and later the numbers grew to around 10,000 people. He sent them there. And that would be important for you today. Wherever you are, God, if you know the Lord specifically, if He's your master and your king, He has put you here, wherever here is. I think of Joseph, and his story is told most definitely in the book of Genesis, but in the book of Psalms, the 105th Psalm, verses 16 and 17. This is what we read. God called a famine upon the land. That's talking about the promised land which God had given to Israel in fulfillment of the promise He had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob generations before. He called a famine upon the land, and God sent a man before them, meaning the household of Jacob, who would have died if they had remained in that famine-infested nation of Canaan. God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Joseph suffered tremendously in order that the people of God could be saved. Perhaps you've thought of this before. If this had not happened, I'm talking about Joseph now. If there had not been a famine in the promised land, then Joseph would never have come to Egypt. But in his coming there, he suffered something awful before he finally was set free of this bondage. He suffered. But the reality is he suffered for a purpose. Jesus Christ was born as a descendant of Judah, one of the other sons of Jacob and one of Joseph's older brothers. 
Jesus was born through him. They would have all died. Judah would have died. The Savior was in the loins of Judah. But God knew that. And there was a greater purpose for the life of Joseph. Do you know the highest purpose for you? If you know the Lord, and even if you don't, hopefully you will come to know the Lord. Is found in the book of Isaiah 43, verse 7, where the Word of God says that we were created to bring glory to God. We happen to be so self-centered that we naturally gravitate toward the pain that is associated with being here, wherever it is. And believe me, I would not try to underestimate the pain of Joseph because the Bible talks about, as we saw recently, how his neck was put in chains or fetters, as it is described in the book of Psalm 105. And actually, we have seen that the word neck literally means his soul. He was soul sick there for over 20 years before finally God showed him why he had been sent there. He'd been sent there to become Pharaoh's second-hand man. And his responsibility included garnering all the great wheat harvest that would come in for seven years, putting it away because there was going to be seven years of incredible famine. For that seven-year period between the time Joseph was 30 years old and he reached the age of 37, he did that. And little did he know that his brothers were going to show up at the end of the period of plenty so that they could have food to eat. But it was painful for him. It was painful for these exiles. The difference between the exiles in question in Jeremiah 29 and Joseph is Joseph was relatively innocent. These people had ignored God. They were being disciplined by God. In either case, God uses situations like Joseph found himself in and like his descendants found themselves in generations later. He used it to draw them closer to himself. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, in commenting on this passage of Scripture, makes this statement. As for our present pain and grief, God saw not these but he saw the future joy and usefulness that will come from them. What you and I don't know is, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen two days from now or six months from now. We have no clue what's going to happen. We can plan and hope that we know what's going to happen, but really we're in the dark about what's going to happen in the future. The future belongs to God. He knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning is what the Bible says. So it's not for us to fret about such things, but to trust God. This is the message in this letter. Realize that God sent you here and that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How many things does God work together for good for you? What is God's purpose for you? It's clearly spelled out in the next verse of Romans 8. And that is that we might become like Jesus Christ, His Son, who learned obedience, the writer of Hebrews said, 
through what he suffered. So suffering is purposeful, always. Whatever form it may take, your and my suffering is always purposeful. It's not just for us to become more like Christ. It's for the glory of God, which obviously would be the byproduct or the goal, more importantly, of our suffering. But in addition to that, we know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Bible says, God is a God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we, in turn, may be used to minister to those who are suffering affliction. There is purpose in your difficulty. Realize that God sent you here. Here's the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture. Make here your home. Look at verses 5 and 6. Build houses and live in them. Let me stop here for a moment. After Ezekiel had found his way among the other 3,022 who were taken into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, after he got there, he built a house or he bought a house, probably built a house, because in the eighth chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy, he makes reference to his house. So, He was part of this group. He heard this letter and he responded properly to it in obedience to what God has to say here. Build houses and live in them. I like that word live. You know, we can just exist wherever here is. We can waste so much of our lives. And I have done my share of that along the way. And probably you have too. Maybe you're doing that right now. You can barely wait until... You get transferred out of El Paso to some place that's green and has four seasons. You can hardly wait. You can hardly wait to get a new job. You may be filling out applications over and over and over again. You're enlisting some of these websites that will go to bat for you and serve as a headhunter for you to get another job. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Hopefully you noticed what we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and these words were addressed to people who are actually, in large part, they're called bond servants in the English Standard Version. Actually, the word is slave. That's what it really means. And the Word of God says, stay put unless the Lord opens the door for you to get out. Go for it if you can get free of a bad job. Or go for it if God opens a door for something that's more agreeable with you and He'll give you some relief. However, don't be so concerned about getting away from wherever here is because you don't ever know what's going to be there. Any of you done that before? Aesop has a fable. He talks about a donkey who was used for plowing. And the donkey was constantly complaining to the gods because he had to work so hard. And he prayed to his god. It was a false god, obviously, a Greek god. And he found himself being sold. And he was very eager to find out what his new job would be, his new environment would be. And he found that he was assigned to someone who was a grinder of wheat. And so what he did, he was attached to an apparatus where he just went around in a circle all day long, every day. It was worse than being 
at the head of a plow, plowing ground up. He complained and complained, and he continued to complain, and finally he was sold a second time. And this time, he was sold, sold to a man who manufactured glue from animals. So be careful what you think of and you think what it's going to be like next time, whatever that means for you. Make here your home. I like the spiritual song, This world's not my home. I'm just passing through. That's true for us. That doesn't mean we can't have joy here. We can have joy here. Our citizenship, Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, is where? It's in heaven. I love what the translation, which is known as the Moffat translation, does with that verse of Scripture. It says, we are a colony of heaven. Philippi was a colony of Rome. Its inhabitants, most of them at least, were citizens of Rome because it was a colony of Rome. And the Roman colonies were to be a picture of Rome in miniature. The culture of Rome would be very obvious there. And the purpose for those citizens who were in these outposts far away from the capital, where the emperor was, was to keep an ear open to whatever message came from Rome from the Caesar, the emperor, and then adhere to it. In addition to that, it was their responsibility to advance the message of Rome, to spread the gospel of Rome. Think about this for a moment. God had sent these people who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the oracles of God. They had the law of God. They had the word of God. And he sent them there. And undoubtedly, as they made their homes there, what we know is that they would have rubbed shoulders with people who were Babylonians and probably people who had been brought like they had been because their nations had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, as had this Jewish group of people. And they were able to tell about the one true God. Did you ever stop to think, that you are here in the job you're in or here in the neighborhood in which you live or here in the home that you're a part of. You're here to be salt and light in that setting, to embody the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to gain a hearing from people. Make here your home. That's the second thing in addition to realizing that God sent you here, make here your home. Here's the third thing. Pray for the welfare of here. Look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Here again he reiterates, I sent you there. So pray, seek for the welfare of it, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. Three times the word welfare is translated. It's actually the Hebrew word shalom. Ordinarily we think of that as peace. But our concept of peace is at best incomplete when it comes to this 
word of shalom. Shalom means peace, yes, the absence of conflict, but more importantly, it is a comprehensive word to describe the best which God has for his people. It was in the best interest of this group of people, over 3,000, to be sent out into exile. If you know about them prior to their captivity, what you know is they had little time or interest in God. But that all changed. That all changed when they went. Because in desperation, and if you think about your own life, the times that you probably have been more consistent in seeking God have not been the times when things were going just the way you wanted them to. Usually you needed a little jostling, if not a big knock upside the head for God to get your attention. And it was for good for you. And it has been for me when these things have happened in my life. To praise God and to grow in relationship. And this is the only time, by the way, lest I forget it, verse 7 is the only time in the entire Old Testament where the people of God, Israel, are told to seek the welfare and to pray for their enemies. The Babylonians were their enemies. And to pray that things would go well in Babylon. That makes no sense whatsoever. But that's exactly what God said. And in so commanding this, what God was saying was, in the welfare of the city, if there's shalom in Babylon, you will get the drippings of the shalom on your own life. Don't kick against the goads. Don't go against what could be good for you. Instead, submit to the Lord. Pray for these people. Pray for the welfare of the city. Here's the fourth thing. Listen to God's word, not man's word, while you are here. If you remember from the near context of this passage of Scripture, what we know is there was a prophet by the name of Hananiah. And Hananiah was one of many false prophets in Jerusalem. And the message of Hananiah and the false prophets was a message that was thoroughly optimistic. In fact, Hananiah went on record about a year before this letter was sent to these exiles. He went on record as saying, in two years, God will bring you back out of exile. Now, if you know that there's going to be an end of some kind of trial you find yourself in, some kind of difficult situation. Sometimes you find what's necessary to just sort of gut it out because you know there's a definite termination point in the future. Isn't that true? Well, here's what we know. That that prophet, false prophet, who spoke not God's word but man's word, it was his own word, he had dreamed it up himself. And that man was a man whose name, listen to what it means, the word Hananiah. And you may remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them? One of those young men's name in Hebrew was Hananiah. The word or the name Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. 
and I'm sure he played on that name. I'm the one who shows grace. These other prophets don't, especially Jeremiah doesn't. I'm showing grace, and I'm saying things are going to be great. Beware of any teacher of the Bible or anybody who would say everything is going to be great. Now, you may think, well, Mike, all you do is talk about, at least today, everything's going to be crummy. Well, it's neither nor. And the good news for us is things which we would consider crummy, lousy, really because we know the Lord, we have the great privilege of seeing God turn those things into things which are God-honoring and helpful in our own lives. Do not listen to the word of man. Listen to God's word. Let's pick up in the passage at verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. There were false prophets with them in Babylon. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream. They were having dreams and their ideas came from the dreams, not from the word of God. Look at verse 9. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, let's skip down to verse 15, because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. For thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city. And Zedekiah was the king. He was the last king to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And he and all his associates, we are told, your brothers who did not go with you into exile, the Lord told the people through Jeremiah, you need to leave Jerusalem because something terrible is coming. He speaks of it here as we read further in verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I'm sending upon them, those who stayed, I'm sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence. And ten years later, in 586 B.C., that's exactly what happened. At the time of the writing of this letter, Jerusalem was still intact. It wasn't the same as it had been in terms of the things that were most desired, but it was still intact. The walls had not been torn down. The temple had not been destroyed. That happened in 586 B.C., about ten years after this letter was received by them. And he says, I'm going to make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with a sword, with famine, and with pestilence. I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, which I sent to them again and again in my servants, the prophets, but you did not listen, declares the Lord. They didn't listen to the word of God. We need to be a people who make it the priority of our lives to listen to the Word of God. We who know Jesus have such a big advantage over these people. Why do I say that? We have the Bible. They had the scrolls, but they had ignored the scrolls. They had not listened to the prophets who spoke. We have the words of the prophets who warned them over and over again. Hosea had warned them. Isaiah had warned them. And now Jeremiah is warning them. They had warned, but they had it turned a deaf ear. They said, we don't want to hear that anymore. Tell us something that we really enjoy. We want to leave the synagogue feeling good. We didn't come here 
to feel badly? Well, here's the reality. When we hear the Word of God, sometimes it does leave us with a bit of despair on the front end. But if we respond properly in faith, in trust, in the sovereign God, rather than wanting to gather around us as Paul talks about in the last days, there will be people who will gather preachers and teachers and prophets around them who are all false, and they will want them to tickle their ears. Just give a good message. Make us feel good. Don't make us listen to what the truth is. Verse 20, You therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he gives another word to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying to you falsely in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, these two false prophets. He will slay them before your eyes. Because of them a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab. They became a proverbial curse because of what happened to them, whom the king of Babylon, this is an awful thing, roasted in the fire because they have acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives and have spoken words in my name falsely, which I did not command them. And I'm he who knows and am a witness, declares the Lord. Isn't it interesting how history repeats itself? Isn't it interesting? When we read the advice and the warnings which are given by God in the New Testament through Peter and Paul and Jude, what we see is this description of these two false prophets is found in the lives of those people in that situation. Things do not change. I saw not too long ago an expose on Jonestown. Some of you remember that awful event that happened in Guyana. And you know a little bit about Jim Jones. Jim Jones was a man who was probably sincere when he started out. And maybe Hananiah, whom I mentioned earlier, maybe he was sincere. But it doesn't matter how passionate a person is or how sincere a person is. If he is proclaiming something other than God's Word, forget about it. In fact, in a moment of fury, when he was still with the People's Temple in San Francisco, Jim Jones took a Bible one day in the presence of his lieutenants and he threw it down on the ground and he said, I'm tired of their listening to this. They need to listen to me. This man was a man who stole one of his followers' wives. He was a man who lived with several women and ignored his commitment to the wife of his youth who was a godly woman. She loved the Lord. Unbelievable. Let's keep reading in this passage of Scripture. The last part of verse 23. I am he who knows and I am witness, declares the Lord. So listen to God's word, not man's word. Here's the last thing. Know that a big part of God's plan for your life is to be found here. Now let's read verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, woe, Jeremiah, two years we could handle Seventy years, we're not going to be here. 
Some of us are going to be dead. Some of us are part of that elder group. Others of us will die what might be described as prematurely. That was not good news when they first heard it. I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. Here again it's the word shalom. And not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Don't you want some hope in your life? We're hoping things will get better here. We're hoping that we will be extracted from here. In order that, we can have hope and some peace. Well, listen to what the Word of God says in the book of Romans 15. It says, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 5, the Bible says, we exult in our tribulations, our trouble, knowing that tribulation produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Do you know the road to hope goes through tribulation and perseverance? That's what God was doing in the lives of these 3,023 people and their offspring who would be born in exile. This is what he was aiming for. He knew they were going to be restored to Jerusalem in 70 years, and he was purifying them and making them more holy. And in the meantime, those 70 years would not be wasted because they were being used by God in that area as they sought the welfare and prayed for the welfare of Babylon. And people were introduced to God through them, the one true God. I love this verse. Many of you could quote it, can't you? Verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You may feel like God's abandoned you. He's forgotten you. Well, God, if you are his son or daughter, he cannot forget you. It's one thing he cannot forget. Do you know what he says about you? He says through the prophet Isaiah, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. That's how important you are to God. He will not forget you. And in that context, it says, even if your mother forgets you, I will not forget you. Some of you have or have had a mother who forgot you. Not by her own choice, but because she had dementia. Maybe Alzheimer's disease. But God will never forget you. He knows exactly where you are. He has a plan for your life, and it's a good plan. Then look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Isn't this the reason God put them in such a situation? It was, wasn't it? To cause them to seek Him. God says through the prophet Amos, seek me and live. You can't live apart from seeking God. That's what the text teaches us. That's what God says. Seek the Lord and His strength. The Bible says, David wrote the words, and seek His face continually or His presence continually. That's to be our M.O. as we walk through this life. Let's look at verse 14. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. Not just from Babylon, because these descendants of Abraham had been scattered all over the region. And he says, I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. He did just that. In 516 B.C., he brought them Home. Now, where is home for us? Where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. And when we're so consumed and upset by here, with and by here, it's an indication that we really don't appreciate the location of our real home. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Do you know that? You're in Christ. Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the throne of God. And we are in Him. That's our primary residence. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. That is to be the M.O. of us who know Jesus. And not get hung up about things here on earth to the degree that... They distract us from following the Lord and depress us because it doesn't look like we have any future or any hope. That's not true because the Lord does have a plan for you. And this plan includes shalom and not calamity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the place of worship. Help us to know you, Lord. Help us to grow closer to you. And Lord, we thank you that you teach us that without trouble, without trial, we would never mature. Make us mature men and women. Help us to respond properly to the hardship that is around us that you permit and sometimes actually command in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.